You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, Episode 9, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dave Crenshaw, an expert at building productive leaders. He has written three books, including The Myth of Multitasking, which was published in six languages and is a time management bestseller. His fourth book, The Power of Having Fun, is due for release this month. He has appeared in Time Magazine, USA Today, Fast Company, and the BBC News. We're extremely pleased to welcome Dave Crenshaw to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, this is Robert Plotkin, the host of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Today I'll be interviewing Dave Crenshaw, the author of The Myth of Multitasking. In the interview, Dave will explain the problems with multitasking and will describe some concrete things you can do to be even more productive and less stressed without multitasking. Here are a few more tips for doing what is sometimes called unitasking or single-tasking in contrast to multitasking. When you're working on your computer, hide all of the windows except for the window of the app you're currently using. This will reduce the temptation to switch to other apps. Even better, quit out of all of the apps except for the app you're using currently. Here's another one. Use only one device at a time. I know that that's very hard. An example would be turning off your computer or at least your computer monitor while you're using your phone or tablet, or putting your phone or tablet to sleep and enabling Do Not Disturb on it while you're using your computer. And here's an example from our Tap Into Mindfulness program. Pick up your smartphone now and find an app that has messages waiting for you. It might be your email, text messages, or Facebook. Find an unread message and open it. Try this with a relatively long message from someone if you can, maybe a paragraph or a few paragraphs if you have one. Now practice reading the entire message from start to finish, without switching to something else. If you find your mind wandering, gently bring your attention back to the message. Keep doing this until you've read the whole message. Now pause for as long as you need to think about what you want to say in response. If you find your mind or your fingers wandering, gently bring your attention back to your response to the message. Once you feel comfortable that you know how you want to respond, type your response. The intention here is to write the entire response before you do anything else. If you find yourself wandering, Gently bring your attention back to writing the message, and when you're done, hit send. Now you've read and responded to a long message from start to finish without switching to something else in between. How does that feel? Today's technology provides endless opportunities and temptations to multitask. If we want to spend our days focusing on one thing at a time, we'll need to develop new ways of interacting with technology. Stay tuned to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast and blog for more pointers on how to use technology wisely and share your insights with us. We hope you enjoyed today's tips and that you'll enjoy the upcoming interview with Dave Crenshaw about multitasking and the power of having fun. Hi, Dave, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. 
Uh, thank you very much, Robert. Glad to be here. I'd like to get started since we focus a lot on this podcast on topics like technology, distraction, focus, attention, and productivity uh, by talking about your book, The Myth of Multitasking. I love the subtitle, which is How Doing It All Gets Nothing Done. And I know there's still a lot of people out there who think that they can maximize their productivity by just multitasking more and more. Can you tell me why they're wrong? <laughs> well, uh, the first thing is that the word multitasking is a problem in and of itself. Um, its origins, since you've got a lot, you know, we're talking about technology and we've got some technology based people listening. The origin is in is in computers. The, the, the term really first came into use in the early 90s with uh, with Windows. Right. The idea that suddenly I didn't have to. I remember back in the day I, I had my Apple IIe. Right. <laughs> and whenever I wanted to switch a program, I had to take the disk out, turn or turn off the computer, take a disk out, put a disk in and turn on the computer. That's how I switched from program to program. And then Windows came out and it gave us the ability to multitask. And somewhere along the line, people hijacked the word and turned it into the idea that people could multitask. <laughs> but the problem is. It's, it doesn't even happen with computers. When, a com when someone using a computer thinks they're multitasking, it, it, what's really happening is it's rapidly cycling back and forth between the programs. So what does that have to do with you and me? Well, we're not really multitasking. What we're really doing is switch tasking. When we're trying to perform multiple tasks that require attention and effort, we are n not doing them at the same time. We are switching back and forth. And that causes us to run into a little problem in economics called switching cost. Every time you transition from one thing to something else, there is always a cost involved. So when people think they're getting more done by multitasking or switch tasking, they're in fact taking far longer and they're making more mistakes and they're increasing their stress levels altogether. What would you say to people who tell you they feel they're getting more done? They'll say, uh, I'm doing these two things at once. Certainly, I must be getting more done than if I just did one thing at a time. Right, right. And and that's why um, one of the things that I do in the book and I also have on my website, if you if you search for Dave Crenshaw multitasking exercise, you'll you'll find it on YouTube and on my site. It's a five minute activity that walks people through the process of what is happening when they think they're multitasking. And it and I find that this five minute activity convinces people far faster than me citing study after study and research <laughs> after research about it, because what they see instantly is that what they're trying to do is taking them 50 percent to twice as long. They recognize that they make all sorts of little mistakes and they recognize the stress that has radically increased just by doing a simple, simple activity that forces them to to switch task. So I was going to ask you what the cost is. It sounds like you've answered it. It's, it's not just the stress uh, that you're saying people actually 
take longer and do lower quality work when they try to multitask and in fact are switch tasking. Yes, exactly. And w- one of the examples that I talk about, you know, I do, I do a lot of work with, with businesses and corporations. And, and one of the things that I talk about is you see these situations where you have highly intelligent people who have, who have been to university, they have a degree, they've been trained well, and they make very, very stupid mistakes. <laughs> Whenever you see highly intelligent, well-trained people making stupid mistakes, that is not a sign of incompetence. That is a cost of switch tasking. And what would you say to people? And I'm not trying to you know, put you in the hot seat. It's really... Oh, feel, feel free to do it. <laughs> I'm asking these kinds of cross-examining questions just because multitasking feels so appealing. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to so many of us, I find myself, even after knowing about the studies and the exercises you write about for years, I still feel the pull of multitasking. And, you know, that's why I'm mm-hmm. ge- asking you these cross-examining questions. One of which is, what would you say to people who say, look, I just, I don't have time to stop and do one thing before I pick up the next one, if that's what you're suggesting I do instead of switch tasking. Switch tasking is my only option. Yeah, well, and and when I hear that, what I hear is it's the equivalent of someone saying, I'm too thirsty to take a drink of water. (laughs) You, you You are causing things to dramatically stretch out. In fact, one of the things that I teach in my, in my time management program, I have, I have, a whole bunch of courses on, on lynda.com and LinkedIn Learning as well. And, um, and one of the things that I teach is that people leave a lot of buffer time in their schedule. What this means is that if you think something is going to take an hour, for instance, you're scheduling on your calendar, you should, in fact, schedule 90 minutes. Why? Because we live in an information overloaded world. The odds of you getting interrupted sometime during that hour are, are just almost unavoidable. Unless you've cloistered yourself away in a (laughs) monastery, someone is going to interrupt you. Now, if you have built buffer time into your day, you'll be able to respond to it. You'll be able to switch to handle the the question and then switch back to doing your work. And you'll probably still find yourself with a little time left over. But if you put your schedule on a razor's edge where you follow what we were taught in time management in the 80s and 90s of, you know, just maximizing every minute on that calendar, what will happen is you will go into time debt which means you have to repay everything with interest and it's going to take you far longer to get it done because you're always going to be playing catch up. This is where that feeling comes at the end of the day, by the way, that so many people experience where they they get home, they're exhausted, they put their feet up on their couch and their significant other says, how was work today? Oh, it was good. Well, what did you do? And and then there's this long pause <laughs> when you realize, I don't know what I did today. I just did a lot of stuff. And that is the, the antithesis of productivity. That raises an interesting question, which is you're a productivity expert. You teach productivity. It's, I think it's your main focus or one of your primary focus. The, the intersection of leadership and productivity. Is yeah. My focus. And what, what would if, – if that's what most of us – intuitively feel is being productive when in fact it's not. What would you say to people is the definition or real meaning of productivity? It's it's getting the results that you want. It's all about it's all about results. 
And, and so what that means is that we have to come up with a way to measure uh, empirically or even subjectively what the result is. Meaning, uh, you know, if I'm talking to a, a sales professional, what really it comes down to is how much did you close in terms of sales? And what is your closing ratio? And even in a subjective standpoint, if I'm working with a leader and they're trying to become a better listener, we can still create a subjective scale on a scale of zero to 10. Um, so, for instance, you know, maybe today they're a five and what we want them to be at at the end of the month is a six or a seven. And we can measure everything that we're doing. And that is the true um, way that we can determine whether or not we're being pro productive. And when you point to people coming home and feeling like they were very busy without getting a lot done, I mean, you're you're very focused on the practical. What people should be doing to be more productive. Although I, I wonder, what is it that leads us to feel like just doing more stuff during the day is, is somehow being more productive, even when it's counterproductive? And then, the, then I'll ask you to suggest to us, what can we do to somehow get past this constant busyness that isn't actually productive? Sure. Well, I'll answer your question with with an example. A lot of times when people see what I've accomplished with time management and what I teach, and by the way, I was I was once diagnosed as, and this is word for word, freaking off the charts ADHD. <laughs> that's what the, that's what the clinical psychologist said to me. Um, so I understand the desire and the the uh, the pressure that you can feel internally and even from the world to switch back and forth. And so people will see what I'm accomplished and they'll say, well, you must be really disciplined. And I say, I know I have absolutely no discipline. <laughs> I'm, com I'm one of the most undisciplined people you will ever meet, but conditioning matters more than discipline. And so when you, you say, well, it feels good. Well, what I hear someone saying is I'm conditioned to do that. It doesn't feel good. It just feels normal mm. and normal isn't necessarily right. <laughs> and so, so my job when I work with leaders to help them change their patterns behavior is to recondition them. There's a lot of repetition because reps change your behavior. They create, they create mental memory, they create muscle memory. And so by doing the reps over and over the right way, the single tasking way, then they become more focused, then they become more productive. And it's not a matter of discipline. It's just a matter of creating a new normal. Now, I don't want to ask you to, to give away all of your secret sauce on the show, but I'm wondering if you could give an example of some kind of new habit that people could practice on their own and um, to start developing some of these new habits. And I know in your books, you, you talk about people in many different positions. They could be business owners, they could be managers, they could be employees, and it could be in our own personal lives or their family and friends. Maybe you could talk about one or two of those and, and, and give a concrete example for people so they can understand what it, what it would mean in real life to practice a new kind of habit. Sure. Uh, so uh, one thing that's, that's really simple that anyone can do watching this, and especially if we're talking about technology, is to, is to take control of it. If your technology in any way, if your phone, if your desktop, your laptop, laptop, if it is beeping at you and reminding you of incoming messages, whether that's chat, 
whether that's a phone call, whether that's whatever it is, an email, you need to turn that off. Because what's happening is every time that occurs, you are strengthening a neural pathway that, that is conditioned to switch to it. Um, and so you're conditioning your mind to rapidly cycle back and forth between work and a, a Skype pop-up, whatever it is. So rather than, than, uh, than allowing email to check you, you check email. <laughs> you create your own schedule of when you are going to go in and get these mess message notifications. You know, if you, if you need to leave open an emergency channel, like for instance, uh, I work with a lot of people and uh, occasionally I work with people in IT uh, and they've got to respond to emergency situations, right? The server went down. Well, okay. Reserve one channel for the, the, the bat phone, <laughs> the, the emergency <laughs> channel when that goes in, then you know, if that pops up, it's a true emergency, everything else, silence it and put it on your own schedule, and that will recondition your mind to be in control of your own thought processes. It's a great suggestion, and it, it raises to me some of the ways in which we can do things individually, but some of the challenges of trying to make changes individually rather than collectively as part of an organization. I mean, to a certain extent, isn't it true that leaving that channel open requires not just the person in IT, but perhaps other people in the organization to know and respect the use of the the BAT channel only for emergencies? <laughs> and, you know, I wonder what you do in the corporate or other organizational setting to help people change the <clears throat> policies or culture otherwise uh, to to not put all the burden on the individual. Yeah, well, and that's why I mentioned that what I do is at the intersection of leadership and productivity. I'm a firm believer that an organization is the reflection of its leadership. And so while my training, uh, you know, people at all levels of the organization, even students um, go through my, my courses and my training and they report it's been helpful, my personal focus is on trying to help the leaders uh, change their perspective. Because if I can help the leaders change their perspective, then that will uh, become part of the overall culture uh, of a company. And I wonder, uh, maybe on a bit of a lighter note, but a, a personal one, we're all part of families. <laughs> I wonder mm -hmm. if you have any similar suggestions for the family or the home life situation, let's say the dinner table or someplace else for how we can try to change that, that kind of culture? Well, I, I think the dinner table, you know, I think most people can see quickly what the, the answer is there, where you create a, a culture that we don't have our phones at the table. And there's got to be some place. You know, I, I like the word sanctuary. And a sanctuary is a reserved place. And you can have sanctuaries physically in your in your home. You can also have time sanctuaries where you're not going to touch technology. And it's a great opportunity to practice, practice things like mindfulness. But it's also a great opportunity to practice just being present. Uh, for instance, my wife and I uh, know that when we go on a date together, uh, we're not going to get on our phones unless, you know, unless – the babysitter is texting us. Again, there is that emergency channel, right? But but it's not that we're going to get on our phones and check our email or check our text messages when the whole purpose of us being there is to be with each other. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned the three effects. Things take longer, they incre you increase your stress levels, 
uh, and uh, you uh, make more mistakes. But there's also a fourth effect whenever you multitask or switch task on a human being, and that is you damage the quality of the relationship. When you multitask on a human being, you're communicating to them that they are less important than whatever it is you have on your glowing screen at the time. And do that repeatedly to key relationships, not just with family members, but with coworkers, your best customers. And the, the relationship is going to degrade over time and it's going to make it very, very difficult to get those good results that, that I've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an old saw in business that, uh, if you pay full and focused attention to your customer, you know, that's, that's what they value more than anything, attention and interest in them, you know, and where they're coming from and what their needs are. Uh, and you're talking about staying singly focused on that while you're with them. Right. Especially in a world where it is normal, you know, I'll do an exercise when I speak, uh, and we'll, we'll demonstrate the that fourth effect of when you're not paying attention to people and so what happens is one person will talk to the other and that uh, the person who's supposed to be listening multitasks on their phone and i asked the audience in one word how that made you feel and often i hear the word unimportant but occasionally especially from from younger people i hear the word normal mm. which is which is sad but it is also an opportunity. If in a world where it's normal to give people partial attention, you as a company make the, the decision to give people your full attention, you stand out simply by virtue of being kind and attentive <laughs> to people. It's a powerful competitive advantage. Wow. Yeah, that is somewhat shocking that it would feel like a, a rare and positive experience just to have full attention. But I can certainly, I think we can all relate to it. I mean, when you talk about uh, going out on a date with your wife and how people are feeling, I think it's a good segue to your new book, The Power of Having Fun, which uh, was quite surprising for me to see as a title uh, on a book from a business productivity expert. <laughs> I live up in New England. I've been here for 25 years. And it's imbued here with the Protestant work ethic where uh -huh. work, work, work is the, is the most important thing. And if you have fun, it's not only secondary, but people might look at you a little funny <laughs> if you're having too much fun while you're right. working. Uh, it's almost that there might be something wrong with you or maybe you're not really being serious about work if you're having fun. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, how this relates to business, if it does relate to productivity, and what made you, what motivated you to focus on this topic as seeing it as something that's so important that you would focus on it as your next book as a business productivity and leadership expert? Yes. Well, and the first answer is it has everything to do, do with productivity. So since we talked about the myth of multitasking, you consider that as, as, a, as a backdrop. The myth of multitasking is about what you should not do. Right. You should not give partial attention. You should not switch back and forth. The power of having fun is the positive twin brother of that book. And it says this is what you should do. And one thing that you should do that most people are not doing is having scheduled meaningful breaks to do something fun, relaxing, even meaningless on a consistent basis. 
And where my attention got drawn to this was, again, working with leaders and seeing leaders who were constantly, relentlessly pushing themselves for hours at a time, whether it's because of that Protestant work ethic or just out of sheer insanity. They just they felt like that is the pathway to success. I put my head down and I keep plowing and I keep working. But the the reality and science does not back that perspective up. Um, people perform far better when they take consistent, meaningful breaks to do something fun. Um, again, I because I wanted to come from the standpoint of having something that illustrates it um, has more impact than just me talking about it. So this is going to be I can I can kind of describe this over a podcast, and and you can try this. But one thing that I have people do is I want, I want them to think deeply about a period of time where they're, they have to trudge for long distances. I call it a desert, mm -hmm. right? So you're starting on one side, you're trying to get to the other. For, for me, ironically, creating the book, The Power of Having Fun was a desert, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it's a long process to create this book and get it to, to launch. So you think about that desert and how the desert makes you feel on a scale of zero to 10. Right. And so when I do this with an audience, they visualize their desert. They imagine how it makes them feel, how much energy they have. And they'll usually put it somewhere around a three to a five. Then we do something fun and and really a bit silly. Um, often with live audiences, I'll, I'll play cookie face. Have you ever have you ever heard of this game? Yes. Yes. <laughs> OK. So so for the uninitiated cookie face we take animal crackers because they're less messy you put an animal cracker on your forehead and you try to get it from your forehead into your mouth without using your hands and so i have um i have people pair up one person does it the other person's a cheerleader and then we play a little game where everybody plays cookie face and then i stop immediately so we take it only takes like two minutes to do this then I stop everyone and I say, on a scale of zero to 10, how much energy do you have? And and it's usually twice what they said before. So if the average was a, was a four, now the room instantly has an energy level of eight. Now, consider this for your workday. You are working hard. You're trudging. You're moving along. And you think, I just need to – I can have a little fun. I can have a little reward when I get this done. And when you do that, you're depriving your body of the very thing that it needs to perform better. So instead, what we want to do are, are take consistent breaks to do something fun and enjoyable, relaxing. And the interesting thing is I mentioned how we had the two groups, right? We have the one group that's the, the partners, one that's doing it, one's the cheerleader. The cheerleader gets just as much benefit out of it as the person who's playing the game. Mm. And this, this substantiates a study uh, uh, called um, uh, walk, down the wing, uh, walk Down the Lane Gives Wings to Your Brain. And what it found was that, of course, taking a, taking a break to do something active like jogging would increase people's energy. But they found that something passive like just watching funny videos on YouTube or playing <laughs> Candy Crush gave people the same amount of rejuvenation. So the key is you've got to choose for yourself and you've got to make it consistent. It all makes perfect sense to me. And at the same time, 
it feels uh, that you're up against some really deep-seated feelings and beliefs that people have about work and productivity. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, that taking any minute off of so-called productive work is going to put you at a competitive disadvantage. I'm a lawyer, and when I was first trained as a lawyer, we only billed by the hour in tenth of an hour increments. And what that meant is there was mm -hmm. always a feeling that for every tenth of an hour you weren't billing to a client, you were lo either losing money for the firm or there was someone else out there, a competitor, that was going to swoop in and steal that that tenth of an hour. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. This is sure. a be common belief that if you're not being productive at every minute, someone else who's the competition will do it instead. And these are these may be irrational, uh, but they're really deep-seated feelings and beliefs that drive people. And I wonder how you address this when you're inside corporations, because we're not just dealing with logic and rationality and, and proof from studies. We're dealing with, with people's feelings about themselves and work. Yeah. And that's why, um, so in, in the power of having fun, I, I outline a five-step process of, of helping people start to inject fun. Or I mentioned the desert. What I, what I introduce are oases. So if you think about what an oasis is, it's a moment in the desert that refreshes and replenishes you. It gives you water. And many people view these things as, um, as something that I deserve. There's that word, right? You deserve a break. And the problem with the word deserve is that it puts it in the wrong perspective. If I'm wandering through the desert, do I deserve a glass of water <laughs> for good behavior? <laughs> no, I need it. It is a requirement for my success. And when people adopt this desert mentality of pushing it off forever and ever, they are depriving themselves of the very thing that they need in order to achieve that success. And of course, you need hard work. And sitting on, on in the desert and just drinking water all day isn't going to get you the result, right? But traveling and then taking the break and then traveling and then taking the break will get you there far faster. So the first step is permission. I have to help people understand. I have to help them get past that guilt that so many people feel. I have to help them understand that this is not uh, a, a necessity. This is not a, a, a something that they deserve. It is a requirement. It is, in fact, one of the top priorities that you should schedule in your week. That doesn't mean it's the first thing that you do every day, but it is one of the first things that you should schedule every day. And everything else must flow around it. Because if you don't, you're going to deprive your body, you're going to deprive your mind of the very thing that you need in order to be productive. It's really interesting. I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the relationship between this and mindfulness, since a lot of mm -hmm. our listeners have practiced mindfulness. It seems to me there's a lot of connections. One that just comes to mind is it's very common in mindfulness practice to set your intention to just notice what your own feelings are at the moment without mm -hmm. judgment. And it, a lot of what you said seems very consistent with that. If I have a feeling that I need some rest or relaxation or that that would be of benefit to me, you know, can I just acknowledge that that is a fact 
without judging it as being bad or uh, feel guilty about it? Or if I feel guilty, can I notice the feeling of guilt uh, dispassionately and see if I can step back from it objectively and look at the full set of needs that I have or just what would be helpful to me at the moment? I wonder if you have any other thoughts uh, about this and ways in which you might help people use mindfulness in any form uh, whether it's a, from a traditional mindfulness practice or not, to promote the kind of culture of fun that you're talking about. Sure, sure. Well, I mentioned that there there are five steps. The fifth step uh, is dovetails with this perfectly, and the fifth step is enjoyment. And now that sounds strange, right? <laughs> well, if it's fun, shouldn't I enjoy it? Yet, because people are in this this go, 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 do it, do it, do it, do it, getting things done mindset, right? They have lost. I, I have, I'm surprised at how many leaders have lost the ability to enjoy fun moments when they happen. Um, and even myself, I experienced this. So I'm, I'm going to tell my own story and I'm going to illustrate a tool that everyone listening to this can improve their mindfulness of enjoyable things when they happen. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, so I received a card from my daughter, Ella. She was seven at the time. She's eight now. And it was just, you know, she's, she's sort of the resident Hallmark expert here. She makes these beautiful little cards with hearts and flowers and unicorns and, <laughs> you know, says things like, I love you, daddy. You're the best daddy in the world. Right now I teach in my time management fundamentals course to use an inbox and to process out of your inbox. So I put it in my inbox following my system exactly. And I picked it up and I said, what's the next step? Well, the next step is to file this away. When will it be done? Uh, well, I can do it now. And where's it's home? Well, it's home is in the Ella folder where she gives me all this stuff. All right. Yeah. And I started to walk it to the folder and then I, I stopped and I thought, my gosh, I am doing the very thing <laughs> that I tell my clients <laughs> to avoid doing. And so instead, what I did was I walked it through the system that I use to help people rejuvenate their ability to enjoy things. And it goes like this, head, heart, mouth. Mm. And I, I, I'll even have my clients point to it. Head, heart, mouth. Again, trying to create conditioning. So head means I mentally acknowledge it. There is no emotion here. It is just simply putting the stop sign up and saying, whoa, you mm -hmm. are going so fast because you're used to just doing stuff. Stop. Acknowledge it. So you just mentally say, this was nice that I got a card from Ella. Okay. Mm. Step two, go to heart. And I emotionally acknowledge it by asking the question, how does this make me feel? Mm. And then answering that. Well, you know what? This makes me feel really good to, to get a, a note from my daughter. It was really, really cute of her to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then mouth. And mouth simply represents some sort of physical manifestation. So this is either saying it or writing it down. You know, you can just say out loud, that made me feel great to get a card from Ella. In my case, I decided, you know, I'm going to take this a step further. 
So I, now I, I am not uh, artistic and not a great card maker. So I went on to one of those online sites. I think it was greetingsisland.com, mm-hmm. right? And I just put together a little cart and card that said, thank you so much for giving me this. You're the greatest, mm-hmm. right? And I printed it out and I put it in front of her room. And what, what that did was it transitioned from just a, a checkoff on a to-do list to a powerful emotional moment for just a simple little thing. Mm-hmm. And, and plus, it gets another benefit. How do you think that made her feel mm-hmm. to get that? It, it made her weak mm-hmm. <laughs> to get a card from her dad like that. But it also benefits me because I've told this story several times when I speak. And every time I feel it or every time I tell it, I feel it again. Mm-hmm. And we can do that repetitively throughout our day with all the wonderful little moments that happen and especially with the fun moments that we schedule. Um, so many people are moving so fast that we've lost that ability to emotionally connect to positive moments when they occur. Yeah, it's a really, really powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and something that strikes me about it is um, – not that this was the reason you did it, but it took very little time, and yet it mm-hmm. had a very powerful impact on you and your daughter. It seems like over an extended period of time, long after you engaged in the act. Yes, yes. And I don't do it every time. That's not reasonable. And I even have to sometimes check my expectations, especially with my four-year-old daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy, I gave you a card. You should give me a card too. <laughs> but... I do it on occasion. And and your emphasis about uh, not taking a lot of time is so important. That's one of the things I talk about in The Power of Having Fun. We think that an oasis is a vacation. That's usually the first place that people go. A vacation is the – it almost perpetuates the desert mindset in and of itself. It's too far apart. It's too much time. And on top of it, because we've been so unconditioned to enjoying those moments, many people are planning their next vacation while they're on their vacation. (laughs) (laughs) So instead, we also want to have a daily oasis. One moment every single day, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes where you do something fun and enjoyable just for you. Not what somebody else defines as fun, what you define as fun. Me, I play video games for 30 minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. And I do that at the end of the day, and that helps clear my mind of thinking about work because my mind is just, you know, like we said, it's just, it's, it's an ADHD-type mind that's just constantly running. So if I, you know, go shoot zombies for 30 minutes, it clears my mind out of all the work that I've done so that when my children come in at 5 o'clock, I can focus on them 100%. And I don't have to feel like I'm thinking about work anymore. And I can focus on my wife the rest of the evening. That's the power of having fun. A theme that seems to be coming through for me from what you're talking about is, I might call it balance in in Buddhism. It's called the middle path, some way of balancing things against each other rather than going from to one extreme or the other. It seems very powerful, different than the kind of maximalizing way of looking at things. I must work the largest number of hours and also recognizing that uh, 
if I can spend the small amount of time having fun, uh, that's okay. And certainly I shouldn't overlook the opportunity to have five or 10 minutes of fun just because I can't take a whole week off. Yeah. I, I, I use the word rhythm more than balance. And what I mean by that is if you look at any kind of successful music or even, you know, successful sports, anything like that, it's a function of rhythm. There are times of intense activity and times of intense focus. Then there are some medium times and then there are down times. And if we're always on, we're never able to get into a rhythm. So part of the power of having fun is finding the rhythm that works for you and and creating a structure that allows you to have those down times so that when it's time to be intense and focused, you have more energy and more ability to do that. I wonder if you could um, address people who I might call fun skeptics. Uh, people who are either skeptical or actually afraid. And I say afraid, even though that may sound strange, afraid that if they allow some fun to slip into their workday, they'll get carried away with it. Could you give sure. a suggestion for someone who who is either skeptical or afraid? What could they do as a very small first step to introducing some fun without running the risk of being carried away by it? Sure. The first thing I would say is, and I mentioned this in the book, while there are studies that substantiate this, and I dip my toes in them, in the end, I'm less concerned about the study of a bunch of random people in a you know, blind, controlled situation. I'm more interested in the study of you, in the experiment of you. So don't take my word for it. Don't take somebody else's word for it because just because 75% of the people benefit from this doesn't mean that you're not in the 25%. So engage in an experiment for yourself. Test it. Try it. Uh, a great way to test this is to have regular uh, – just start with work breaks in your day. Um, I didn't talk too much about this, but there's a, there's a concept. It's actually a, a scientific construct called the Iltradian Rhythm. And it's the cousin of the circadian rhythm, which is your sleep-rest cycle, right? The Ultradian rhythm says that the average person can go about 90 to 120 minutes until they need a break. And every minute beyond that point is diminishing returns. So do what, what one manager I worked with did. Start with a schedule. Put in three breaks in your day. And lunch can count as one of them. So you really only need one in the morning and one in the afternoon where you're going to do 10 minutes of something just relaxing for you. Uh, for him, he's into MMA, so he, he, he did shadow boxing for sure. 10 minutes. Um, you can just watch videos on YouTube, okay, and create a schedule and try this for two weeks and pay attention to what happens to your performance after each one of these little mini breaks, these micro oases. And – if you want to measure it as well. You know, how did I feel before? How did I feel after? And then after a couple of weeks, come to your own conclusion. That way you're not just trying to take my word for it and run headlong into this concept of having fun, <laughs> but you're trying it and you're seeing what works for you. He found that, you know, originally we started with 90 minutes and he said, you know, I, I still have gas in the tank at 90 minutes. So we tried 120 minutes. And then that was too far. 
So then he found that his perfect ultradian rhythm was about 100 minutes. So you can experiment and move around with it as well. But that's a nice place for everybody to start just in the context of their workday. I really appreciate the suggestion. I think it's a great place to wrap up on the interview, not only because it gives people something very concrete they can do on their own, also because it it ties in the work that you do very closely with mindfulness meditation, in which uh, if you've ever attended guided meditation session for mindfulness meditation, uh, common instruction is don't listen to me investigate this for yourself, pay attention to your own personal experience, and that's the ultimate guide to what is best for you. Yes. (laughs) So thanks very much, Dave, for the interview. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Robert. I did too. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Dave Crenshaw, author of best-selling books including The Myth of Multitasking and his newest release, The Power of Having Fun, which is on sale now. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.